we are back. The Daily Vedantic, our 20-part series on the Gita. And this is the last episode in this series. Did a little bit of what you could call saving the best for last with this last episode. First 10 episodes were on the major themes that are often discussed when it comes to the Bhagavad Gita. And these last 10 episodes have been on the under-discussed themes within the world's most famous poem. These are all my opinion. I've just selected these. These are not outlined in the three-year course within Vedanta Academy. Uh, If you really want to get to know the Gita, then I highly recommend the follow-up to this series is going into the show notes, going to vedantaworld.org and uh, signing up for their e-learning, their online lectures. They call it e-learning, but don't worry, there are no quizzes, there are no tests or anything like that. It's just a lecture a day. And of the three-year course, two years is spent on the Gita. You can do it from the comfort of your couch, your home, your bedroom. It is, I watch a lecture every morning here in LA. It's a miracle to be able to just tap into an ashram from our phones in 2024. Outrageous, the luck that we, that we have, the good fortune that we have to be able to do that. 100 years ago, 200 years ago, 1,000 years ago, you'd have to trek to the Himalayas and bring a teacher firewood for a year before they would take you as a qualified student and teach this wisdom to you. Now you just tip, tap, tip on your phone and you can tap into the timeless wisdom that is Vedanta or in this series case, that is the Gita in a much deeper, more reflective, more transformative way than a brief, the briefest of brief overviews in a 20-part series. Even though the Gita itself is, like I've said many times, a 30-minute conversation, it's a 700-verse poem, 701, based on uh, the version that you have. But that's uh, the next step. If you really, if you're digging this so far, I'd go check that out. If, you're, if that feels like too much commitment, the follow-up would be to read Vedanta Treatise and see a soup-to-nuts, beginning-to-end compendium of this philosophy written out in the most clearest... Most clearest? Yeah, I'm going to combine those two in the clearest, the clearestest way that I've ever seen. So that would be the follow-ups in case this 20-part series has intrigued you. The last episode, there are a few little goodies in here that I've saved, but I'm going to start with the reflection, the concept that's perhaps the most under-discussed. When you click on a uh, YouTube video about the Gita or you um, buy an average translation Or you even go chat with maybe a scholar, a scholastic approach to the Sanskrit and the definitions, the various interpretations. One thing that is often left out of the commentary, unless it's from someone like Swami, is the role of the intellect. We've chatted about this in a handful of of episodes, and this is perhaps the central practical contribution 
within our daily lives of the philosophy of Vedanta is the role of the intellect. You have three equipments to navigate our lives, to navigate the world. We've got a body that's not going to that's not going to uh, be groundbreaking for any of us. A mind, which also not revelatory. We all generally understand we've got a mind, but you have this other internal equipment within the body to guide the mind, to guide the body, to guide your life, and that is the intellect. And perhaps my favorite two verses of the entirety of the Gita, chapter 18, verse 37 and 38, it's about this concept of that which is poison in the beginning is sweet in the end. And that which is sweet in the beginning is like poison in the end. The discernment between the two is the intellect. Observing, you know what? This ice cream is really sweet in the beginning. This uh, lazing around the couch, Netflix binging, shirking responsibility at work, that's really pleasing in the beginning. And this verse doesn't just say beware of that or maybe that's not a, a good thing. It is straight up saying that which is like nectar in the beginning is poison in the end. That which is sweet in the beginning feels good to us in the beginning. It is going to be poison for us in the end. The definition of the intellect is that, that capacity within ourselves to see the end in the beginning. The intellect is the clarity, is the capacity to see the end in the beginning. To recognize, you know what? The last time I did, I had that hard conversation at work. It was like nectar in the end. It was sweet. It was actually so beneficial for everybody. Myself, my coworker, our customers, our larger team. That hard conversation with a, a spouse or a significant other that hard acceptance of responsibility for something that went wrong with, within the relationship with a spouse or a significant other. That uh, sitting with that sadness that you might have around some circumstance in life, sitting with it instead of chasing a distraction from it. Sitting with it, feeling it, that feels like poison in the beginning. And grabbing the bottle, a shot or two of, of whiskey to numb that feeling, to numb that sadness, that discomfort, that can feel very sweet in the beginning. But you wake up the next morning with problems that have multiplied instead of diminished, sweet in the beginning and poison in the end. Depending on the translation, you might have sweetness or nectar, but nearly every translation has poison in the end. The intellect is the capacity to see the end in the beginning. And the intellect, like the body, is like our muscles, requires development, requires cultivation, strengthening over time.
to increase our ability, our capacity to see the end in the beginning. This is such an under-discussed theme within the Gita, though the word buddhi, which means intellect, is replete. It's throughout the Gita as well as Upanishads and, and the philosophy of Vedanta, and, and yet it's under-discussed because we can get so caught into the exotic aspects of this philosophy. I've heard Swami say that people either always want to talk about the illusion or they never want to talk about the illusion. Very few people want to talk about the means to transcend the illusion, meaning that it is, it's really exciting to get hold of ancient 10,000-year-old idea that none of this is real, especially if it's the first time to come across it. And that is the deep end of the pool. That is a profound, radical aspect of Vedanta. Some people love, I know I'm in that bucket, love talking about the exotic aspect of what this philosophy is saying. Some people shudder at that thought, sounds so ridiculous to them that they never want to talk about that. They just want to talk about, oh, detach you gain, attach you lose. If I detach, I'll get what I want. If I can cultivate distance and, and a healthy detachment, uh, I'll improve my odds of getting it. Or, oh, I love this and I don't want to lose it. So I'm going to maybe pay attention to the fact that I'm a little too attached to it. And a phrase like that is so powerful in our practical daily lives. A concept like that. And they don't want to get anywhere near the radical idea that also your daily life is an illusion and has nothing to do with reality, with what's really going on. But very few want to talk about the means to transcend, to transcend the illusion, which is daily reflection, which is cultivation of the intellect, which is questioning everything quite an uncomfortable level to get to the point where you're okay being wildly misunderstood by your community. Going outside the pale, going outside the, the path prescribed to you, maybe heavily by religious parents that might find your own discovery of uh, philosophy or viewpoint that's different from theirs as one that is really invalidating to theirs. And they could go so far as to formally or informally forbid it, hang their relationship with them in the balance. There are all of these aspects of the path to transcend the illusion to transcend the self-imposed suffering that very few of us want to talk about or reflect on. That's why I love this, these two verses and this concept that that which is sweet in the beginning is like poison in the end and that which is poison in the beginning is like nectar is sweet in the end. To round it out, another reason I love this, this concept of not only the intellect being the capacity to see the end in the beginning, but also 
letting you know, hey, if it's sweet in the beginning, maybe pump the brakes, reassess and, and see, okay, is this one of those things that's going to be like poison in the end? Because it probably is. I'd say 99% of the time it is until you've cultivated sweetness within that bitterness of going to the gym, of having those honest, hard conversations, of always accepting your responsibility and duty at work or in your family life. Once you get there, then it is sweet. You, you actually are tasting the nectar each time you partake in the, the wild but beautiful lightness of duty as opposed to the heaviness of, of desire and feeling like everyone needs to be going in this direction for me ends up being quite heavy. It ends up being quite bitter. It is like poison. I know that from running multiple companies when I've had such strong desires of, it must be the way that I've outlined in my head. It's gotta be this super, um, detailed, micromanaged version that I've come up with. All hundred employees need to work towards that. God, that is heavy. And that is so destructive to team rapport. It's so destructive to a healthy team dynamic. And you end up just feeling like, man, I need to just paddle this boat all on my own because everybody else has kind of been like, well, every time I try to offer my viewpoint or my version of what we could do while well, James, the boss just kind of jumps in and destroys it or jumps in and changes it to where it's, he's made it his and not mine. I, I don't really have any co-ownership in what we're doing. Then it ends up being like poison in the end. And it was so sweet to jump in and change this and this and this to say, do it exactly like this, sweet in the beginning. And then you end up with a hundred employees that, and multiple executives that feel like, well, what's the point of even putting my best into this project or into this company? If at a moment's notice, the CEO is just going to jump in and change everything. Fast forward 10 years of building things and my current company, one of the, the three that uh, I've started in the last few years, Magic Mind, it is a breeze because other people have really grown into their roles, taken complete ownership, been given complete ownership to where a year ago, telling my co-founder, hey, I think you should be CEO. It was, it's the best of all worlds. I get to contribute in the area that I know that, okay, I'm quite competent in this area brand building and community building and the actual product design. But I can offload all of these other, other things that he loves that are just not in my zone of interest. Financial planning, Excel modeling, the day-to-day -day management of supply chains, of retail rollout. That stuff just isn't that interesting to me. And in this next chapter, that is the CEO's job. When people asked, was it hard to hand over the reins, knowing the alternative, knowing what life was like 
and previous incarnations of entrepreneurship. I'm almost confused by the question because it's so much more effortless this way, where yes, there were so many unknowns of, okay, what will he change as the CEO when I'm not in the driver's seat? But it is like nectar each day, waking up with a task list that fits, that is so in line with what I'm suited for rather than waking up each day with 12 different to-do items with things that, I mean, I go cross-eyed when I open up a spreadsheet. That ain't my jam. Thinking about margins and improvement and supply chain uh, delays, that ain't my jam. And with a developed intellect, you see these things from miles out, from years out of what is going to be the right fit years out, what will be the wrong fit and how to get there. And then you end up waking up each day and it's your jam all day long. And it is so sweet. Then you apply your intellect to say, okay, now what else do I need to chew on that is tough right now? The role of the intellect and seeing what will be poison in the end and what will be so sweet in the end. That is a theme within the Gita that is so under-discussed, in my opinion. And that's chapter 18, just couldn't outline it better with verse 37 and 38. Practically speaking, today, an hour from now, five hours from now, when you have the choice to choose the sweet option, maybe gut check yourself and say, okay, because I know it's going to be sweet, maybe that is the first telltale sign it's going to be like poison in the end. It won't be sweet in the end, even if that's how it starts. In rounding out this 20-part series, a few little bonus breadcrumbs that come to mind, things that I love thinking about when when contemplating and reflecting on the guitar, it is this conversation between a warrior prince and his charioteer, his guide, his advisor, his childhood friend that ends up being the symbolic embodiment of God. That is not only profound, but it is so practical and that the intellect is, that is our internal guru. That is our internal guide our charioteer to lean on. It might not lift the weights, but it decides, yeah, we should lift these weights. The conversation between Arjuna and Krishna is the conversation between the mind and the intellect. One of the things that I could have talked about is you know, my favorite chapter at this stage of my life is actually chapter one, a chapter that many people throw to the side because there's no philosophy. It's actually Arjuna just yapping away. But what I love about chapter one is Arjuna in his cowardice, in his knowledgeable cowardice, he starts spouting off false philosophy of saying, you know, we shouldn't fight this civil war. We should go to the forest and study philosophy. And that's called the spiritual bypass. The reason I love chapter one is because 
I find myself doing that all the time. Justifying in a really savvy way. Because Arjun is smart. He's making a really savvy argument that, hey, we should back out of this dire scenario. Abdicate responsibility. Let unrighteousness win. Because eh, it's a little too dicey. And I'm scared. And I might die and... I also might do the wrong thing. Let's just leave and go study philosophy, which sadly is, that's the mental image of a philosopher in our modern age. Someone that's not dynamic, that is relieving themselves of, of duty and responsibility and life as they move to, I don't know, a quiet cabin in the woods or some ivory tower and study these concepts instead of living an action-oriented, dynamic, duty-bound life. I love that chapter right now in, in life just because that is me so often coming up with some savvy justification to not accept the duty, to not take the righteous path. And it's something that we have to be so careful of because especially with these tools of these philosophical concepts, it's so easy to take the spiritual bypass and not even know it. I mentioned my favorite verses. I just touched on my favorite chapter right now in my life. One of the other things that I could have talked about in this series is the ladder of fall, which is a beautiful outline of where we go wrong and that's going to be a separate episode coming up. So we will talk about that. And that is often, that is a theme that is often talked about. So that would have gone in the top 10, uh, the first 10 episodes in this series. I could have talked about leading by example because Krishna, he says, you have to lead by example. This isn't just a modern cliche that you've heard a thousand times because it's been hip for the last 30 years. This is one of the most timeless principles that humans have ever come up with, articulated, and reflected on, and that is that those around you will only go so far as the example set by the leader. You have to lead by example. This is in chapter 3, verse 21. Krishna says that whatever the great leader does, others will follow. Whatever standard he sets, the world follows. Albert Schweitzer, famous Nobel laureate, said that an example is not just a great way to influence others. It is the only way to influence others. Leading by, an ex by example is a phenomenal theme within the Gita that I could have included as well. With this last episode, I was tempted to talk about the five ways in which we help those around us and how the Gita outlines the five ways in which we can help others. And this also will get its own episode. Um, I've touched on this before, but it's this beautiful articulation and prioritization within this philosophy and, and the ways that we help others and how we can optimally help others. Give people money? Yeah, that could be helpful, but it is the least of all help that you can provide. Give people your physical presence, and that's better. Maybe help them get to the bus stop instead of just giving them 
a dollar. Maybe help them get something to eat. Walk them to the, the convenience store instead of just giving them a five spot. But there's another way that you could help them emotionally. Understand what they're going through. That's even better than your physical presence and it's even better than financial, monetary help. Then after emotional support, there's wisdom. Maybe you've cultivated some wisdom on something that you can help them with and you can impart that wisdom to them. But the number one way we can help those around us, as outlined by Vedanta and the Gita, is cultivating that wisdom within ourselves. You can only impart the wisdom that you yourself have cultivated. The most important work we do for others, as Ram Dass so poetically put it, is the work we do on ourselves. The most important work we do for others is the work we do on ourselves. Instead of just walking up to two people playing chess and saying, you know what, do this, 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 and uh, replace those uh, pieces with uh, cheese crackers, replace this piece with a uh, piece of tree bark, let's take this piece and just throw it all. You don't even understand the game, and yet we're so quick to impart the wisdom we think we've cultivated the advice that we think that they should listen to. And yet, we ourselves, we don't even understand the game. That is so often the case when we are telling a friend what to do, when we're trying to guide a team of ours at, at work, to lead in our families. So what's the best thing we could do to help those around us win the game is to understand the game. And the best way to understand the game is to do the work and the reflection within ourselves that's required to understand what's really going on. The most important work we do for others is the work we do on ourselves. So many different concepts and themes within the Gita that in a 20-part series you just can't get to. That's why I started this episode with the same call-out that I'll end it with, and that is if any of these concepts intrigue you, then I recommend jumping into the e-learning within uh, Vedanta Academy. The link is in the description. You could also purchase Swami's Gita commentary. It's this phenomenal outline of all of these concepts and so many more said so much more brilliantly than I ever could. And you can just search his last name, Partha Sarathi, Bhagavad Gita, and uh, you can buy that copy. Or... You could buy Vedanta Treatise, which is the compendium of this philosophy from the Upanishads to the Gita to just an entire universe of wisdom in this nearly 100-year-old life that he's put pen to paper in this book, Vedanta Treatise, soup to nuts, beginning to end of all of this, what this philosophy has to offer. That's three different great follow-ups. But at the very least, at the very least, if any of these points within the episodes or this episode itself spoke to you, jot it down and reflect on it again and again and again, maybe over the course of a few days, a few weeks, maybe a few months, because reflection is a hundred thousand times more powerful than listening. That is a notion within the Vedantic philosophy that I find so beautiful because 
we all know something just can stop us in our tracks. An amazing TED Talk that we love, that we send it to 10 friends, and yet the next day, we can't remember exactly how it was Artica. Three days later, we forget we even watched it. The antidote to in one ear, out the other, is the recognition that if you really want to ingest something, if you really want to be transformed by it, you've got to reflect on it over and over and over again because reflection is 100,000 times more powerful than listening. Experiencing is 100,000 times more powerful than reflecting. And you get there through a whole lot of reflection. Hope you've enjoyed this 20-part series. And if this is your introduction to The Daily Vedantic, you can hit subscribe and get one of these delivered to you in any podcast player or YouTube or any social channel each day. These reflections on that work that we do within ourselves to the benefit of everyone around us. This is The Daily Vedantic, and we'll see you next time.